0: I'm JJ Walsh here in Hiroshima, Japan. And today I am talking with leadership executive coach and outdoor enthusiast mountain man, Corey McGowan. Thank you so much for joining Corey.
1: Hi, how you doing? Great to see you.
0: Great to see you. And look at your amazing background. Tell us a little bit about where you are right now.
1: Yes, I'd love to. So I am about 160 kilometers west of Tokyo. Uh, we're in Gunma Prefecture and actually right on the border of Niigata Prefecture. So the mountains behind me are kind of the border between uh, here and there. And the river that you see running down next to me is the Tonegawa River, which is the second longest river in Japan. It supplies Tokyo with a lot of its water and the source from that is about um, about 20 minutes that way or so.
0: So I, place. Saw, I saw on your website that it really only takes about an hour from Tokyo to get where you are, is that right?
1: Yep, so from Tokyo Station to the station here which is called Jomo Kogen, it's uh, 66 minutes.
0: Wow, and that's yeah. one of the benefits of living in a place that has been popular for tourism for a very long time. You were talking about it has a Shinkansen connection and good hotels and lots of facilities is that
1: right yeah yeah it's um Minakami was one of the places that received a lot of investment during kind of the bubble times so there's a lot of structure but like in a lot of places in Japan how much upkeep has been done with them is pretty varying um but you know there's a it's a really interesting mix of kind of a local agricultural community a uh, pretty big tourism area that's a combination of people coming here for hot springs but also for the outdoor activities um, and now uh, particularly in the past 12 to 18 months a growing community of people that have relocated here because they realize that they can live their life here and do their work in Tokyo or work remotely. So that's kind of this newly developing part of the area that I'm really excited about.
0: Yeah. And in addition to your coaching, uh, which we'll talk about uh, right after this is that you are kind of an ambassador for the area and helping people find out how, if they wanted to, they could relocate and move out to this beautiful area like you have. Is that right?
1: Yep, that's right. So uh, the position in Japanese is called Iju concierge, and Iju means relocation. And the concierge part of it is like similar what you'd think of as a, in, a, in a hotel, right, where you kind of show people the services that are available. Uh, and it's a really interesting program. I, I think it exists in different rural areas like Minakami. Um, I'm the first non-Japanese person to do it in Minakami and possibly in Japan, we're not sure. Um, But yeah, when people make an inquiry to the local town office or the Yakuba and say, hey, we're thinking about moving there, um, they'll get a little bit of information from the people and then have them come for a visit. And they'll, you know, if you take the train out here, they'll pick you up in a car and they'll take you out to some of the different uh, areas around here, take you out to lunch, take you to hot spring. Um, And it's this really interesting approach because one of the challenges of living in an area like this is you need the local community connection. Uh, it just makes it so much easier to, uh, to settle in, to find the things that you need. And so they're kind of creating, by doing this, they're creating a bridge between just the official town office and people that live here and that have some connection to the community. So I've only been here about three years, um, but I do know quite a few people here. I worked in one of the outdoor companies here for a year. And so um, it's been a really fun way to show this place and to help people to come here and settle in.
0: That's awesome. And I think it's so important to have local people like you who can work as a bridge because it's not just about language. It's about know-how and it's about connecting to local people because you've done that and you've enjoyed it yourself as an outsider. So yeah. I think having people like you in that role is really important for rural revitalization, making sure these beautiful areas outside of the cities do not die and keep going and keep doing yeah. what we all appreciate yeah. about what they yeah. what they offer to us, right?
1: Yeah, 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 no doubt. I mean, I think what's happening with COVID as terrible as it is in so many ways is probably one of the best chances Japan has had in decades to rebalance things a little bit. You know, when we first moved here, uh, or actually before we moved here, we went to a meeting at the school and we were talking to the principal there about kind of what's happened with the school and the decline in the population of kids there. And one of the ways he described it is what's called the J-turn. So what that means is that people from Minakami would go to Tokyo, find it a bit too intense, doesn't quite suit them, but not come all the way back. They'd, they'd stop in Maibashi because it felt easier to be in a city, right? So there's this kind of exit is out and a part way return, right? So that's, a, that's even though this location is so, so good, that's one of the real challenges here. And I think that COVID and Minakami places that are kind of saying, hey, what can we do about this? They're building uh, different shared workspaces. They're having programs to make people feel welcome and make it easy to move here. And I, I feel quite hopeful about that for Japan right now.
0: That's great. We've talked to other people who've moved from the city, uh, Byron and Kaori Nagi, for example. And they were talking about uh, reanalyzing your life and shifting priorities. That yeah. for them, they were really happy in the city, but uh, things just didn't seem great for having kids. And they decided to move out and start a guest house and do organic farming. And then, at first, they were going back to Tokyo a lot, and yeah. then they discovered they actually weren't going back very often. Have you found similar thing?
1: I haven't been to Tokyo in two years now, <laughs> yeah, wow, uh, you've really and I transitioned I uh, yeah yeah i mean there's been there's been kind of no need for it, you know it's one of the advantages of getting to do the work that I do and the acceptance of the shift to all of it happening online is that it just hasn't been necessary. Um, and listen, I, I lived in Tokyo for more than 15 years. I have really good friends there. I loved the experience there, um, but this, <laughs> you know, it's just like, I, I really don't feel a need to, to leave this place at all. And And COVID has made it a little bit scary to kind of go back into the city and, you know, with kids. And so, but yeah. That's that's kind of where we've been at over the past two years.
0: Yeah. And uh, you were talking a little bit in the great Tokyo Weekender article that just came out a few days ago. Uh, You were talking about uh, when you transitioned at first, you were thinking of keeping your job in Tokyo. And it was possible because it only is an hour commute. That's a kind of a nice um, sidestep if you can, before you, you jump full into that rural life. Yeah. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I did that for a year. So at that time I was working at the Tokyo American Club, which is you know, not too far from Tokyo Station. Um, and Tokyo American Club is relatively conservative when it comes to <laughs> flexible work. But I had a, a boss in the HR department who gave me the go ahead. And one of the big differences that I was allowed to count my time on the Shinkansen's Center's work time because you're sitting there and you have your computer and and didn't have Wi-Fi at that time. I think they do now, even though that was only two years ago. Um, but yeah, totally doable. And that's what I mean. Like I now that this kind of forced shift has come, I can see more companies saying that. Listen, yeah, you don't need to come into the office more than maybe two or three times a week. And yes, you know, you work on the train. You can do that if you have you know kind of computer-based work. Um, so totally doable, totally doable.
0: Wow. And that that's a, a nice, uh, easier transition, I think, for a lot of people, instead of giving up completely their jobs in the city and, and completely moving out without any kind of income. Um, you right. talked a little bit about uh, working at the Tokyo American Club. You were also uh, trained as an executive coach. You were doing developing management with them. And it sounds like you were also coaching NPO leaders, pro bono during that time, is that right?
1: Yep, yeah, so I um, got my certification for executive coaching in 2017. uh, And that was again, supported by the club. I was doing a lot of different type of kind of leadership development activities, but coaching felt like a way to reach out to people directly and kind of work with them in a sustained way. So that was supported, um, but also kind of looking to the future of getting to do uh, more coaching eventually, reached out to some of the heads of the, the major NPOs uh, in Tokyo and got to work with them. And it was a really great way to kind of start off that experience to work at the leadership level with people and kind of just see the impact that um, coaching has and just kind of really got me excited about it. And I'm kind of still in that today.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like you kind of went away from coaching for a little while. When you first moved out there, you were working in adventure sports and uh, doing kind of a different type of career. And now you've gone back to coaching, but it sounds like you've gone back to coaching and integrated what you've learned from the local community and nature a little bit more. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So, um, I had the opportunity to work with kind of the, the biggest and most well known outdoor and adventure company out here, Canyons, uh, as part of the senior leadership team. And I thought that I'd spend some time doing coaching on the side while I was doing that, but that was not happening because it was a it was a it was like the kind of the biggest management role that I've had so far, so it wasn't possible. Um, and then as with a lot of the outdoor and tourism industry, um, kind of COVID had its way with that and it was put a suit on and head back into Tokyo or not do that. (laughs) And, uh, so jumping into coaching, um, and, and actually the main driver for this happening is that I had my own coach and my coach helped to get me through kind of the shock of being out of a job in after being there for less than a year and that was a, a big transition anyways um, and helped me to come to the realization that's like there's nothing stopping me from doing this and by the way yeah I can tie in all the stuff that I love which is this you know like why not tie in outdoor and adventure and coaching um, and so yeah that's kind of how it all started and, and where I'm at right now. I lost your audio, JJ.
0: Thank you. Oh, it looks—it <laughs> looks a little bit glitchy too. Oh, too bad. Um, I can just describe. I'm showing your website right now. Uh, you're mm-hmm. talking about the key aspects of your work. So, mind yep. to heart, slowing down, ecology, and letting go. Can yeah. you give us a little overview of that?
1: Sure. So. I was trained as in kind of classical executive coaching, which is quite um, it's quite goal oriented. It's quite action oriented and it's it's really effective for a lot of leaders. But what started to draw my interest is more kind of on the transformational side, which is kind of for me, those are four of the big things. so for example, mind to heart, we spend a lot of time in um if you're if you're familiar with like kind of logos versus mythos, right? Like our, our thinking selves versus our kind of very creative beings. And we spend a lot of time in that. And I'm interested in in how do we move people from that, open them up to their kind of real creativity and, and kind of core ways of being. Um, slowing down is something that I've really experienced here over the past three years. And it's really opened up a lot for me. So helping people to explore that. Um, the ecology piece is really interesting. Like I had kind of never imagined bringing climate and bringing sustainability into my coaching conversations. And it's, it's, an, it's very much an edge for me now, right? Because kind of a core tenet of coaching is that you don't bring your own agenda to the clients, right? Um, but thanks to, um, another organization that I've been working with, I've realized like, how can we not be having these conversations with our clients right now? And coaches are in a really unique position to work with leaders who have impact over organizations and what they're doing. So, um, slowly bringing that into conversations and into kind of contractual agreements with clients, like part of what we're going to do is have these conversations, um, and yes, yeah, it's, it's been it's been really interesting and challenging.
0: Really interesting. And and so I, I've talked to a few people in the series um, who are working with like troubled teens, for example, and they get yeah. them out to nature and they reconnect the teens who have had so many troubles in their life back to the forest and the trees and doing simple out- yeah. outdoor activities. And the amount of healing that happens in people's lives when they can get out and reconnect to nature. So it makes a lot of sense to use that, to use nature and ecology and thinking about reconnecting to our roots, our ancestors. You know, everybody depends on nature so much. But when we live in cities, we forget about it. Right?
1: Yeah. Yeah yeah and the beauty of it is it doesn't take much right it doesn't take moving here it can be a weekend away it can be an overnight um but i had i had kind of forgotten about that myself like living in tokyo i, I do a lot of running and cycling and through my running i started to get into trail running and i was like oh i forgot like how much i love being in the outdoors and how much it refreshes me how much i you know kind of um I, I get from just, just being in this environment. And so um, getting people out here, and then also one of the things I learned with my experience in the outdoor and adventure company is that kind of extreme adventure is actually not really my thing. I mean, I've, I've certainly done quite a bit of adventure that people may consider extreme, but it's actually not the space that I wanna be in with my clients in particular. I'm, I'm much more interested in exploring what is adventure for you And how do we tie it into the outdoors in a way that's really accessible, right? And kind of promotes the deep work instead of like only scaring the shit out of you, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've um, I've done
0: some consulting recently and they first approached me saying, we want you to uh, help consult with us about sustainable destinations for adventure tourism And and do the monitor tour with them. And I was like, I'm really excited to do that, but I'm really scared. To do yeah. bungee jumping? What are you gonna send me out of a plane? Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. my image yeah. of adventure tourism is like hardcore, yeah. like a zip yeah. lining and stuff, which I could try, but it's getting harder yeah. as I get older. So yeah. it's nice that it's it's kind of a wider net now, right?
1: Yeah 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 there's a there's a framework i'm and i don't know who to credit it for but kind of these four types of fun and i won't explain all of them but this idea of type two fun which is when you're doing it you're scared of doing it but when you're done you're glad you did right so that's that's kind of the sweet spot that we're looking for where it's like oh but oh okay i'm glad i did that i i see the value in it i see the insight that i got from that and that's what we're shooting for
0: Yeah. And just to point out in your area, there is a lot of great adventure sport uh, of all levels, right? Like you could do great walking, you could do great hiking, but you also have whitewater rafting, paragliding, bungee jumping. You have a lot of things that I've never seen in other areas of Japan.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, So there's something like 40 plus outdoor companies here, varying kind of in size and scope um and generally things are divided into the green season and the winter season uh green season is pretty water focused because in addition to the Tonegawa, there's lots of other kind of canyons and uh, lakes and dams and stuff around here um but also of course like hiking Tonigawa. and then winter like just in minakami we have eight different ski resorts uh we're also just across the tunnel from yuzawa which has even more and um Minakami in this area has some of the best uh, powder in the whole world. You know, people come from all over the world to come and ski in the powder here. So, so uh, yeah, lots of lots of options. There's a there's a mountain ten minutes from here where I spent my morning all morning, just like super accessible. Take a walk in the woods, come back with your feet covered with leeches this this season, unfortunately, but <laughs> but um, just it's just all around and and accessible, like at the level where you want to access it as well.
0: Now, speaking of getting into trail running, uh, you also have a pretty powerful experience with the local wildlife, right?
1: Yeah. Yes. So um, a little bit more than a year ago, I was out for a walk uh, just about 10 minutes from here. This actually wasn't, uh, this wasn't trail walking. I mean, this wasn't trail running. This was literally a like a contemplative Sunday walk. Turned off the road about two meters, and I met a bear. Um, And the bear did what bears do. It was a mother. Um, There weren't cubs around at the time, but I know that it was a mother now. And basically, she was just being protective. I didn't have a bell or anything with me because I just thought that was annoying, right? Like, I love to be in the silence of nature with my trail running and stuff. And uh, so I surprised her. She took me down. And she basically took out my legs with her claws and bit my arm, uh, went back into the woods, turned around and faced me again, and then let me leave. So it scared the shit out of me. I was in the hospital for a week. Um, But what I learned really quickly is that it um, it was this really powerful example of mercy in nature. You know, she could have done a lot more damage, and she was really only doing what she needed to do and no more than that. And so that kind of took me on this journey of learning more about bears in Japan and coming across this organization called Kumamori, which is a, an association, an NPO, that protects bears in forests because uh, they're in danger of becoming extinct. So there are um, not many laws around, like, for example, there aren't real relocation, like tagging, um, tagging programs like there are, for example, in North America. And so there's a real there's a real danger for bears in Japan right now. Last year, there's something like six thousand bears were killed in Japan in one year. Um, so I'm very sensitive to when people talk to me about this, like even the language people saying, oh, you were attacked by a bear. Well, actually, I don't. That's not what it was, right? It was a it was a bear following her instinct, and I did not kind of give fair warning to walk into the place that is her natural environment, you know so um, so fortunately that you know it was not life threatening It was really scary. I still uh, hesitate to go into the woods by myself right now, and I get a little worried about my kids, like in this neighborhood in particular, the bears use the river here as kind of a throughway because it's easy when it's low water to walk up and down and and find the food that they need um so it's been it's it's been life changing um and it's something that I really want people to understand is is an issue in Japan because Um, If you take one species out of an ecosystem, the impacts, we don't even know how big the impacts are. I mean, the the clearest example are the wolves in Yosemite, right? Um, And we don't want that to happen here. So um, I feel like it's been kind of this lucky circumstance that allows me to know a bit more and to start to talk to people a bit more about it as well.
0: Definitely. And your story reminded me so much of my talk with Mari Dornehege about her work with sharks in Japan. Okay. And in okay. J- in Japan and around the world, sharks yeah. have a very similar image of predators yeah. and something that is scary and we just need to get rid of. And even the language yeah has changed recently and some people who have had shark encounters in Australia have become campaigners to try to protect them. And I I think the language, like you said, the language is really important and we need to think about the bears, just like sharks, as a very important part of the ecosystem of the forest and they have a very important role in the forest. And we need to stop uh, cutting down all their trees and taking all their food and then blaming them for coming into our areas, right? So we we need to really think about where we are in connection to nature and respect nature instead of always trying to control it, right?
1: Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, listen, Japan's got a, a really deep and rich history that, honestly, I don't know that much about, but in terms of relationships of animals, really deep relationships with animals, I mean, Shinto is, is a lot about that, right, and, um, and now when I talk to local people about that here, you know, you're talking to farmers that, you know, their apple trees get destroyed by bears, right, and so it makes sense that they say, no, just, just kill them and get them out of here because that's, you know, it's hard for me to deal with that, um, and it's hard for me when I mention, yeah, actually, did you know that there's a, a danger of extinction and how many bears have been killed in Japan? They'll just say, oh, that's not true. It can't be true, right? Because there are bears everywhere around here, so they can't be true. And when you look at maps of one of the biggest issues for people that are, are not familiar in Japan, one of the biggest issues is that Japan has been logged out, basically the almost the whole area of the country and the majority of that has been replanted with cedar because it grows straight and it grows fast and you can use it for lumber right Um, but an all cedar forest is basically a a desert for animals like bears that need to eat um, seeds and berries and and so the bears as much as they don't want to be around humans they're just trying to survive you know they're trying to fill their bellies in time for hibernation in the winter and if they have to come to a place like this, they will. So um, it's, it's complicated, right? It's this, it's yeah. this, you know, having these complex conversations with locals who um, they're just trying to survive as well. Right. So. But
0: a really great story. I interviewed uh, author Hannah Kirshner, who wrote a beautiful book, uh, probably not too far from you, but she joined duck hunters who were using traditional methods, throwing Hmm. up nets into the air to catch ducks. Wow. And this is a very traditional technique that you can't huh. catch many ducks, so it yeah. actually helps preserve and, and you know conservation of these this species of ducks is nice. thanks to this traditional technique. And they were able to use the argument that this is our heritage and tradition to stop people sh- shooting them with guns or, oh, yeah. or killing too many. Right. So if yeah. we take the same kind of principle and examples from the past and apply them to maybe conservation and not getting rid of everything at once. Let's think about it. Um, That's really important, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I
0: love the organization that you mentioned and I looked at their website here and they are involved with planting more diverse trees in replanting projects, um, talking about education. So getting into schools and talking about bears uh, doing campaigns to protect the bears. So it seems like a really great organization that you're supporting. It's wonderful to hear.
1: Yeah. And they also go to the diet and they, and they argue with lawmakers to make laws that, um, make it so it's not so easy to kill bears and hopefully to, to track them and remove them. Like the, my, my kind of shallow understanding of the relocation of bears is it's kind of a training and a budget thing, right? You have to have the right kind of traps. You have to have people that know how to use them because it's extremely dangerous to trap a bear and then relocate it. Right. And then you have this really sensitive issue of, well, where are you going to relocate it? (laughs) Whose backyard are you going to put it in, you know, or which mountain are you going to put it in? So, um, but if you can get that at a policy level, right, and then and then start to talk to towns about how to do that, that's kind of a best a best outcome. So, yeah, they're um, the the organization has been around for a while. Um, they're really scrappy, um, but they're they're doing they're doing great work from what I can see.
0: I have cats jumping everywhere. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> Talking about wildlife inside yeah. my own house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's get back to coaching a little bit because you've got some, some interesting ideas about coaching. Um, you talk about, I think you mentioned earlier, uh, the best coaches have their own coaches. Mm-hmm. So it's important for you as well to get that support as well as giving support to people. Can you talk about that a little bit? I found that really interesting
1: sure yeah um first just like as an overview i I feel like this is such a wonderful time for the coaching industry i mean i'm I'm still relatively new to it but as the as the world grows in complexity the support that any kind of um well-being providers can offer is really critical and coaches hold this unique role of kind of supporting people and being like really forward-looking and kind of creating this future that they want for themselves. That's hard to do on our own because we have blind spots. You know, we have these limiting stories that we tell ourselves. Um, and so in my own journey as a coach, again, it, it took, it took me being at a place where I was, um, pretty wounded, um, to be honest with you, by what happened at my last job, really, you know, the provider of a family, you know, kind of the shame that came up with a job not working out the way that it, that I, that I thought it would. Um, and I didn't know how to navigate that on my own. It's You know, I can't, I can't burden my wife with those conversations. I can have conversations with my friends and they're going to be supportive and they're going to say, it's okay. Everything's going to be all right. But what a coach is going to do is say, You know you keep telling me this story for example about about what you can and can't do but how do you know that's true like what what kind of limitations are you creating for yourself and one of the things that my coach pointed to at the time was seeing me kind of come into my own power as i shifted from feeling like i was on a on a back foot from something not working out the way i wanted it to into more of like well what is possible here and what do i have access to and And helping me to tie into the fact, like, I spent my 20s basically as an adventurer, right? Just kind of out and about, traveling around the world, doing expeditions. Um, Some people would just say messing around. But in my head, particularly being in Tokyo is like, oh, shit, I'm like 10 years behind my peers, right? You know, I don't have this. I don't have an MBA. I don't have this training or that training. And what my coach really helped me to see is like, man, that's an asset for you this, this time out on your own in isolation and doing these adventures, you can actually bring that to your coaching. And that was a, that was a real turning point for me. So, um, if I hadn't invested in the coach to do that, then I, you know, I wouldn't have certainly wouldn't have progressed at the speed that I did and been able to set up a company at the time that I did. So, um, yeah, I just, I can't recommend that enough for people in the profession. It's the same as, um, people getting therapy when they need it. Like I, I run into more and more people these days that are really open about talking about the fact that they're in therapy for themselves right now. And um that's beautiful. <laughs> you know, the um the comfort uh the comfort with that being something that you need and a normal thing to do. Um my father committed suicide about five years ago. So I have this really intimate relationship with mental health and um, just you know how difficult it can be. So when I hear people talk about that and say that they're getting getting the help that they need for themselves, it's it's really promising. So I say that's so why I say it's like this. Feel like we're in this kind of really rich time for this type of work, and there's more and more people interested in becoming coaches. Uh, and the the community of coaching uh, community of coaches is like the most generous community I've I've come across in my life. Just people always willing to help out with resources, introductions. Um, you know, these kind of different courses that they're offering and whatnot. And so yeah, it's really been it's really been a wonderful journey so far.
0: Yeah, and that's that's so powerful. And it's such a a common thing, especially right now, with COVID yeah. happening, people losing their jobs and and really feeling frustrated about what is the new normal. And this yeah. is such a difficult time to transition, yeah. right? And finding yeah what you can do with the new normal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sometimes having a coach can make all the difference, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and what you just mentioned there about kind of the, the new normal, like that's one of, you know, one of kind of the four aspects of the work I do is the letting go piece. And I think that's what's the hardest for people right now is it's, it's so easy to kind of grab on to what, what was. Well, if I just get vaccinated, then I can go back to what was. And we are in this time of civilizational transformation right now. And it's scary as hell. And it's got all the possibility in the world. And, um, you know, I think coaches in particular tend to have this I don't think it's like a blindly optimistic view, but this access to like, there is a lot possible here. And each of us has in us like this kind of undiscovered capacity that can be drawn out by someone else. Again, like with blind spots, it's really hard for us to bring it out of ourselves, but um, someone that can kind of help to identify that with you, inquire with you about that and bring it out is, is man, we just, we need that right now.
0: And sometimes people just get in their own way. Right. You you yeah. think you think of yourself as a certain kind of person and you can't change like you have all these handicaps that you've created for yourself. Yeah. So sometimes yeah. you just need someone who's listening and seeing you and yeah. then can suggest things that is so obvious, but you just cannot see for yourself.
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your experience, JJ? I know you've worked with a coach. What was that like for you?
0: So uh, I and I know that you you have met Joan recently and uh, I have interviewed Joan in the series and I saw in her website after I interviewed her that she offered coaching and I was Mm. thinking about writing a book and uh, about this amazing series that I'm doing. And she really helped me to think about a lot of different ideas for the book and themes for the book. But along the way, it really made me realize I don't want to write a book right now. (laughs) It's not the right thing for me. But for some reason, I had it in my head that this is something I need to do to to make progress during COVID, you know, to get something productive done during yeah. all this time at home, you yeah, know? Yeah. And yeah. then I started realizing, thanks to talking to her, she's an amazing coach um, that I was doing something productive and it's yeah. not just talking that it's connecting with people and sharing useful information. So yeah, it really yeah. helped me a lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Nice. Now you have a really interesting uh, kind of group uh idea coming up campfire can you talk about that a little bit
1: sure yeah so this is a a brand new program uh i think it's kind of uh the first of its kind in japan but uh all my all my coaching up until now has been one-on-one coaching and i've kind of been drawn into the idea of working with groups and i've been inspired by uh some different coaches in in tokyo uh in that direction um, but there were a couple things that spoke to me about this one, again, getting to work in a group, another is bringing people to Minakami, because that's really a big part of my mission is to get people to know this place, even if they're not going to live here to know it and to kind of come up here and, and be here. So it was a way to bring people here, get them in the outdoors, challenge them again, in, in ways that are accessible. And then the other kind of key part of it that came up for me was that I wanted it to be in a group of men. Um, the idea of kind of men's work and working in men's group is a bit more kind of common or maybe not common, but it's, it's, uh, probably a bit more advanced in North America and Europe. Um, if it's happening in Japan, I don't know much about where it's happening, but for me, the core of it is I've had these amazing male relationships in my life. And I've always been kind of curious about what's, what has allowed that to happen and what could happen if more men had these relationships. So, um it's about bringing this time anyways bringing a group of men together and and in the first part of it it will be just eight weeks online and we'll do what we're, we're calling it building the fire pit but it's basically just spending time together on some core themes like relationships communication like letting go as i just mentioned what are things we need to let go that aren't serving us anymore so building kind of a core as a group over eight weeks And then the last one will actually be around a real campfire up here in Minakami. and then for people that want to really go deeper the second part of the program is six months and in that six months time there will be two group visits here where we'll do overnights and outdoor adventures and um, kind of different group activities together there'll be a solo overnight um, in the middle and that's why i was out in the mountains today kind of scoping out the area where we plan to do that Um, And all of that will be then supported by individual coaching with me throughout the six months. So the idea is that in the first part of the program, when we build that foundation and people really, uh, that kind of the men come away with, all right, this is the thing that I really want to focus on. The six month program will allow them to both be supported as a group, but also get the individual coaching to kind of work towards that thing throughout the, the six months. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about it. And a little intimidated by it um, because I haven't done it before. And it's kind of like the newest version of of my own adventure because for me, it's very much leading into the unknown. right? It's it's a a place I haven't been. And so I'll get to be there with the men in the group because it'll be unknown for all of us.
0: Yeah, and it looks amazing. The area that you've chosen um, that you're showing on your website looks incredible. Is that in the Minamikami area?
1: Yeah, so uh, Doai Station is this somewhat famous station in this area. I'm not sure how well it's known across Japan, but it's this really unique thing where to go to the train uh, going towards Niigata, you get on right at the station. But to go the other way, you have to go all the way underground (laughs) to the opposite side of the track. So there's this massive underground uh, staircase that goes there. but there's a really interesting new project there where you know, lot, JR in a lot of rural areas has quite a bit of land around the stations and they're trying to find ways to leverage that. So um, they kind of opened up for bids to do that here. And there's this company called Village Inc. that is actually based out of Izu and they have this interesting concept where it's, um, it's glamping, so glamorous camping. Um, but they tend to do it more for, um, instead of just having, they do have tourists come, but they tend to do more of kind of group work where they rent out the whole glamping place to like, um, events like mine where people are going to stay there, be in a group together. Um, and they've got these things called instant houses, which are really cool. That's a, it's a glamping tent, but then it's been, uh, blown with polyurethane, um, insulation on the inside that it's cooler in the summer warmer in the winter and in this area where they're they're about 30 minutes 40 minutes that way slightly higher elevation probably three meters of snow in the winter so in the winter you'll be in this in this insulated tent with little with a little space heater with you know snow up the sides of the tents um and yeah and they've done a really cool job where they've built these raised kind of walkways around it and um it's just going to be a great place to bring people together have a campfire we'll be there again uh winter and also kind of early spring so see some different seasons
0: wow it looks amazing and there is so much beauty natural beauty around the area so in addition to all of the the glamping and all the other activities it's not hard to find some more beauty and amazing you know scenic locations to take a walk or a hike or do some adventure sports right
1: yeah yeah definitely definitely so it's at the base of tanigawa dake mountain which is for me i'm kind of seeing it increasingly more and more as a very sacred mountain Um, it's the mountain where uh, most people have died in the world actually It's somewhere around uh, 800 or so, and that's due to very quickly changing weather conditions. Uh, And also the sides of it, um, it's called Tanigawa. Tani is valley, and it's kind of made up of these different valleys around it. Um, So uh, you have to be careful there, but also I see it as this is a place where so many adventurers have kind of spent their last moment doing the thing that they love right so I feel really lucky that we have this proximity to that place Um, and it's got amazing hiking it's got a ropeway that goes up it so you could take the ropeway and um, do a climb that's what I'm doing with the Tokyo Weekender group next week is we're going to do a climb to the peak to support uh, Tokyo English Lifeline Um, and then there's a there's amazing uh, skiing there Uh, great you know, great foliage viewing, and then the town is doing cool stuff in the off-ski season where they're doing the, um, what's it called, like the, um, is it projection mapping or whatever? It's the, you know, you kind of put up these different, um, these different graphics with projectors on the side of the mountain, and it's, uh, so it's it's cool, the, the town is doing lots of different stuff to invite people to come and check the place out.
0: That is really cool. And for anybody who doesn't know in Japan or outside, uh, tell Tokyo English Lifeline, really is a wonderful resource. Uh, anybody can call and get counseling online. Um, yeah. You can also go on to have paid counseling online. Everything is anonymous. It's a wonderful uh, charity. Is it uh, NPO, I believe?
1: Uh, it is. It is an NPO. Yep.
0: So a nonprofit and uh that's a great organization to raise money for. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Especially now I think during coronavirus, like we mentioned yeah. before, there's a lot of people struggling yeah. with mental health, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And in Japan, you know, kind of the mental health thing is is really challenging. Um within Japanese culture, it's its not something where you'd kind of talk about it, right? It's not something where you'd probably even seek help because there's still uh, so much. There's a lot of shame associated with it, but there's also this Gaman concept in Japan where it's just like you just put up with things. Right. That's just that's just the way life is. Life is tough. So you put up with it. So um, for Japanese people it's already enough of a challenge for them to get the support that they need. But as a foreigner here, trying to find the resources, like chances are you'd be sent to um, basically like a like a psychologist and maybe just given some medicine. Right. Um, And much harder to find kind of counseling or therapy that you need, particularly in English. So what TEL does that's really amazing is that lifeline, you know, you can call anytime. Uh, I believe they do chat now as well, but then they also offer some um, in-person counseling and therapy services. So yeah, super, super important organization that I've been supported before as well, particular like when my dad died, being in a grieving group together. And, and so yeah, just a, an organization that uh, is really helpful and, and deserves being supported.
0: Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Thanks for talking about that. Cause it's such a great resource and it's, it's so wonderful if people feel uh, s- stop any inhibition and just call. Cause there's, there's no yeah. downside, right yep. You're not giving up anything and it's anonymous. So y- yep. it's up to you.
1: Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I just also want oh, to go. plug that they, they also do a really um, a really good training program for volunteers for the lifeline. And I think that happens either once or twice a year. Um, so if people really want to support and want to support others, that's a, that's a really amazing way to do it as well. So if you check out their website, there's there's resources about how to be trained as a volunteer.
0: Yeah. Selena Hoy, a uh, writer and uh, cat activist. She was talking about okay. cats most recently, but she also yep. introduced uh, Tell, and she works with them as well. So yes definitely wonderful resource thank you so much tell people for all the great work that you do for japan yeah um you uh, getting back to coaching a little bit you mentioned that within each person is the capacity to build the life they want (laughs) so do you feel like you you've done that by moving out to the rural area are you building the life that you want for you and your family how are your kids adjusting everybody kind of happy and balanced out there
1: yeah yeah thank you for asking um yeah it's been it's been a really incredible three years or so you know the we came across minakami through some friends um they had a, a besso like a vacation home out here and very generously said you know we we actually are moving to hong kong so feel free to use it when you want and uh you don't have to invite me to do something like that more than once so um we came out a few times a year and then just realized it kind of made sense to do the commute and and got my company to be okay with it and my uh amazing wife who is she's from Chiba she's not a she's not a rural person she's much more of a uh an urbanite uh was willing to give it a try because our boys at the time were kind of just the right age to still make a move Um, and to understand uh, about community. And that was kind of my key driver is like, I grew up in in a a rural community in the US, and I really wanted them to to get a sense for that and to be more in the outdoors. So, you know, the move for the boys was from this big Tokyo school to the school where there's like 30 kids in their whole grade. Um, So they got to know them really quickly. The great thing about kind of Minakami's history is that there have been foreigners living here for more than 40 years and so while there aren't a lot of bicultural kids here it's not a complete unknown so that transition was easy Um, the transition for my wife was a little challenging because she was working full-time in Tokyo and she wanted to do this partly to be able to focus on kind of being with the boys more but she missed her colleagues she missed the adult conversation she was having um but the neighborhood people around here have filled that to a certain extent just incredibly welcoming and generous and easy to talk with um and then we got a dog which probably filled that other need because she gets to spend all her time with the dog too so um yeah the the transition has been has been it's it's exceeded expectations honestly i mean this where i'm sitting right now is out in front of a house that we built and moved into in may and that also getting to work with a local contractor, um, the surprising affordability of both land and building here um, has been amazing. So uh, yeah, it's uh, since I've been here. What's been strange is that I felt like home in a way that hasn't since I since the house that I grew up in. So it's it's strange to feel like you're at home when you're on the other side of the planet from where you were, where you were born and grew up. Um, but that's really the sense that I get here. And I just, I feel incredibly lucky, particularly when I hear all the stories of people stuck in apartments during COVID, you know, and just like they, they can't get outside. And so um, the, the level of freedom that we've had and the community that we've had has, has really been amazing.
0: That's awesome to hear. And uh, before, in the beginning of the, the conversation, you talked about being kind of ambassador, helping people get information and actually giving people tours if they're interested in learning more about relocation. It looks like you're also doing collaborative work with Matt Ketchum and the Akia and Inaka group. Yeah. So on your Matt's,
1: website? Yeah, Matt's been out here a couple of times. Um, what they're doing is really cool uh the you know akia or the abandoned houses is a is really complex to navigate so um what they're doing in terms of getting the word out to people helping to be the bridge um between um you know all the all the paperwork and all that to get people into houses so they can work on projects um and just also functioning like i have a friend who has a a really nice house out here so they've supported him and trying to find someone to buy that so um yeah it's it's like getting to work in this collaborative space it feels like there's a lot going on in these communities and like you were saying around rural revitalization and it's just it's just such a cool space to be in right now and it's um i feel like again like i said before i feel like there's a lot of potential in it
0: that's awesome i want to buy or rent the one with the water wheel i love that
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) i'm sure that's a traditional like museum or something yeah. It's fabulous. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned on your website that they are kind of developing more co-working spaces to try to entice the teleworking crew from Tokyo. That seems like a great initiative. How does that work?
1: Yeah, uh so there are a couple different organizations doing that. Um, one is this organization called Flap. Um, I don't really know the history behind the name, but it's a Japanese organization that's that's actually an NPO that's kind of supporting the town. And the first one that was created was an old kindergarten that was then repurposed into a shared workspace. And I actually worked there for close to a year at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and it's great, you know, high speed internet. Um, you know, they've kind of modernized it so it's comfortable. Um, and then since then, a couple new places opened up. So the SLAP organization opened one right near Minakami Station, and it's a combination guest house. And co-working space. So one of the challenges of living in a rural area is if you go out to drink somewhere, for example, it's hard to get home or it's hard to get anywhere without driving and there aren't many trains. So the concept is go and work there. There's a, there's a craft brewery like right down the street, Go out, have some drinks, and then you can come back and spend the night there. And it's this, um, in Japan, this kind of staycation thing where you could come out from Tokyo, do a bit of work there, spend some nights there, and then go back do some outdoor stuff as well. And then the third place that's under development right now is um, operated by the same company that opened the glamping place where I'm uh, doing my program, and that's just up the hill here. And it's actually used to be uh, Ryokan, a traditional Japanese hotel with onsen. And so same thing, it's going to be a shared workspace, but also onsen and a place where you can spend the night. Uh, And I think they'll um, have you do like business retreats and that sort of thing as well. So, yeah, it's really cool to see, like, if you, you know, create these spaces, allow people to come here for shorter periods of time. Like, maybe a move is just too big of a, of a shift for for someone. But you could spend time here and, and uh, get a feel for it.
0: Uh, um, since you mentioned uh, onsen, I have to mention how amazing all of the outdoor hot springs, the Rotenburo, yeah. Yeah. look unbelievable like you have yeah. quite a variety on offer yeah. there i can't wait yeah. to come
1: yeah i think it's like 18 or something just in minakami um Ooh. this one that we're looking at here it looks like takaragawa which is probably one of the most well-known ones because it's just this these massive uh, outdoor baths that run along the river and it's it's just incredible um Amazing. but yeah it's, it's a great place to uh to sit in some hot water
0: yeah and if you're doing outdoor sports and adventure sports, the next best thing is to soak those tired muscles in the hot water, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. That's
0: fantastic. I also yeah. was glad to see that you are promoting this great looking coffee shop that does fair trade coffee beans yeah. and does their own roasting. I'm I'm always complaint, kind of complaining when I visit places in the middle of nowhere, you do lots of activities, but there's no coffee and I'm just running out of steam. <laughs> I need the coffee. So this yeah. looks like a great place. Is that near you?
1: Yeah, these are some friends of mine, um, a guy named Craig Cook and his wife are doing that. He's uh, Australian, she's Japanese. Uh, and I think they've been doing it for maybe six months or a year, but he's just like super interested in coffee and learned, learned about how to roast it and where to buy a roaster and how a roaster imported and all that. And it was like this, it's supposed to be just a side thing for him because he's actually an executive. Uh, he has an executive search firm um, and three kids, um, but it's taken off. Like they, they can't keep up with the demand. Right. And it's really good. Um, they have, um, I think the, the beans that I've had there, I think from kind of like three different locations that I've seen so far. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that. There's quite a bit of entrepreneurial spirit in Minakami these days. So there's that. And then there's this this other company called uh, Futamimi. Um, so the the mountaintop of Tanigawa has two peaks. And so it's kind of referred to as Futamimi. So Futamimi is this place that they all they make is um, boutique onigiri and they only sell it on sunday mornings to people that are coming up to hike and they're sold out every time they only do orders through like instagram you can reserve your orders and it's just like it's really good um locally made stuff so yeah lots That's of cool stuff awesome. like that awesome
0: so for anybody yeah. outside japan onigiri is rice balls um, and yeah. so really high quality race balls perfect when yeah. you're hiking. Um, yeah. One of the things I love about this coffee shop, tell them they're doing a great job. I love to see packaging that is plastic free, mm-hmm. which is yeah. so rare in Japan. So yeah. keep up the good work. Plus yeah. fair trade. Yeah. They're doing direct uh, buys from the coffee grower. It sounds yeah. like that, that's yeah. a really common thing with uh, coffee companies in Japan which is yeah. very impressive. It's like better than fair trade. It's yeah. direct trade and they're making sure they take care of the manufacturer. It's awesome.
1: Yeah. 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 Like I said before, also, there's a local brewery here called Oct One and their beer is really good. Same thing. They can't, they have just these two vats that they produce in, in their brewery. So they can't actually create large scale. So you got to come here if you want to have it, but it's, it's really good. So uh, yeah. Lots of cool local stuff going on here.
0: Wow, that sounds amazing. And if you have so much local appeal, uh, local assets and local facilities, activities, as well as these shops and services, that's the full package. That's the way yeah. a rural community is going to survive. That's awesome. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: So we, we have just a few more minutes. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you want to talk about?
1: Well, specific to sustainability, um, you know, this is a it's kind of a new space for me, but I think I mentioned a little bit before an organization that is kind of helping to guide coaches in bringing sustainability into our uh, conversations with clients. So there's an organization called the Climate Coaching Alliance, um, and there I think they're about two years old, but they're already I think over 2000 coaches strong globally. Um, I helped to start the Japan chapter here, and it's really it's really a great organization that sees, okay, we're an industry that can have great impact across the world related to the climate crisis, and we feel a critical responsibility to do that, but how do we do that? <laughs> so it's this organization that... Um, brings coaches together, supports them in how to have those conversations. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. It's kind of, they, they refer to themselves as a conscious non-organization. So it doesn't turn into hierarchy. It doesn't turn into, you know, um, kind of what we typically think of as the challenges, particularly for nonprofit organizations, they have local community chapters that support themselves and then they come together once a month globally. So, um, that's something that's that's really new in Japan. If you're listening to this and you're a coach in Japan, I would love for you to contact me directly or uh, look up the Climate Coaching Alliance um, because I, I really feel like we can make an impact um, in Japan and around the world.
0: That's awesome. I just found their web page just now, yeah. Climate Coaching Alliance. It's a great step forward because coaches are supporting the emotional and mental health as well of their clients, which is of course part of sustainability, but also supporting the environment supports mental health and supports emotional health and what goals you're able to reach. It's all connected. You know, sometimes yeah. people say to me, oh, well, we only focus on environmental sustainability. We are not yeah. focused on the social or people aspects. And I was like, yeah. wow, how do you separate it? Because it's all connected, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like what you're doing, uh, helping people to heal by getting them out to nature. It's mm-hmm. you can't say that the environment is not important to getting people to reach their goals and help them improve their lives, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that's so much of why we find ourselves where we are is we've slowly grown further and further from the the oneness that we used to understand with this environment, right? And there's so much going on these days that's kind of helping us to to understand that, that connection again. And that's why i feel quite excited about kind of what's possible and that it's also just really complex and hard to navigate
0: yeah, fantastic well that is our hour thank you so much corey
1: thanks jj it's been great to talk
0: it's really wonderful talking with you thank you for sharing all the amazing stories and thank you for all the great work that you're doing in coaching as well as getting people to enjoy love and maybe even move to the beautiful rural areas of Japan
1: <laughs> yeah open invitation please come visit I'd love to show you around
0: wonderful thank you so much thank you everybody for joining today we had a lot of great comments uh, heavenly do from Texas thank you for your comments and she said I'd visit wonderful make sure you get your way over there glamping yes lots of things mm-hmm. on offer there You'll have to come to Japan once the borders open again. (laughs) Thank you so much, Corey. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. Take care. Bye.